0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series that we started last week on the Ten Words. This episode is all about how the Ten Commandments are given as Ten Words. Ten Words here, Peter Lighthart and James Jordan are going to discuss the setting of the 10 words at Sinai. They're going to have an interesting conversation about how these 10 words are addressed to a corporate Adam, and then ask questions surrounding where is Eve or the woman in the giving of the 10 words. And towards the end, they'll discuss how they believe the 10 words are given in a 5 plus 5 form. We really want to thank you for listening in to this episode. And here are Peter Lighthart and James Jordan having a very interesting discussion on the 10 words.
1: Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart. I'm here today with James Jordan. Uh, Alistair Roberts is still winging his way across the Atlantic from the UK over to the US. It's a very, very long flight. It's taken about a week for him to get across. i also here with Brian Motes, who's uh, making sure that the uh, machinery keeps running. He's uh, got his oil can oiling the machinery to make sure the cranks keep turning. And we've still got John Crawford sitting quietly in the corner, asking questions that are not on the recording. (laughs) But we're continuing our study of the 10 words. Uh, As I explained last time, we're using the phrase 10 words because that's what the Bible calls, what we we call the 10 commandments. And it's helpful to use that phrase rather than 10 commandments because it brings out an important fact about the 10 words. The fact is that the 10 words contain not only commandments but also other kinds of speech acts. It's not simply that God lists off do's and don'ts. Uh, Some of the commandments, some of the words are very specific, very pithy, very terse, do nots. Commandments 6, 7, and 8 in the Hebrew are simply two words. It's the negative, low, not, and then a verb. Not all the 10 words are like that. There are statements of God's character. There's statements of God's actions on behalf of Israel. There's warnings, there are promises, there are threats. And all these different speech acts are part of the 10 words. So we're disciplining ourselves to use this biblical phrase, 10 words, not to be pedantic, but because we think it brings out an important part of the, the reality of this text. Uh, and today we're going to be looking at the 10 words in general, looking at the setting in Israel's history, the form of the 10 words. One of the questions that has divided the church to some degree is the, the counting of the how do you get to 10, how do you count to 10 from this text that's not as obvious as uh, it may seem and then we want to look at uh, the so-called two tables of the law how do we divide up the 10 commandments should they be divided up into two tables and then uh, we also want to talk about something about we want to talk something about the grammar say something about the grammar of the 10 words and what that implies about the kind of discourse this is so i'll start out with the, the setting uh, obviously the 10 words are first spoken on mount sinai Israel has come out of Egypt. The first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus are about Israel in Egypt and the Lord's actions with the plagues to bring them out of Egypt. The Exodus takes place in chapter 14, the Song of Moses in chapter 15. They start making their way through the the wilderness. And in the third month after they leave Egypt, they arrive at Sinai. That's said in Exodus 19.1. Uh, the third month becomes the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost is a harvest feast, but it's also it's the first fruits of the harvest, but it's also uh, a commemoration of the giving of the law. Uh, and that's relevant to our understanding of the New Testament Pentecost, when the Spirit comes like a rushing mighty wind on the apostles, the 120 who are in the upper room at Pentecost. That's a new Sinai, as it were. The Spirit is coming to write the law on the hearts on tablets of the human heart rather than on tablets of stone. So you have the third month theme, but you also have a third day reference in Exodus 19.16. It came about on the third day when it was morning. That it was thunder and lightning, flashes of thick clouds. So the Lord comes down on the third day, uh, and uh, it seems like that's still the day that uh, is uh, going on when the Lord begins speaking to the people at the beginning of chapter 20. Uh, And that third day reference, I think, is helpful, important for understanding the the context and the significance of the 10 words. That's, I think, a creation reference, and I'll come back to that in a second. But the other creation reference is the fact that there are 10 words. That phrase is not used here in Exodus. It's used a couple of times in Deuteronomy. I think it's used later in Exodus. The the things that the Lord speaks are 10 words, and then Deuteronomy refers to this a number of times. Uh, but 10 words is also a creation illusion. Uh, when uh, God created the world of the space of six days and then he rests on the seventh, but there are 10 times when Genesis 1 says, and God or and Elohim said. So God brings the world into existence by speaking 10 words. And now at Sinai, he speaks 10 words again. And that connection implies that there's a new creation motif going on in the ten words. God is speaking a new creation into existence by speaking to Israel at Sinai. The third day reference I think is more specific. It's also a creation reference. He's speaking on the third day. And the third day of the creation week is the first uh, is, the, is the day when the Lord speaks to the ground. The first half of the third day, God divides the waters so that dry land appears, but on um, Second half of the third day, he speaks to the ground, the ground begins to produce fruit, uh, begins to produce plants. Grasses yielding seed, fruit trees yielding fruit, those are third day phenomenon. The first fruits of the creation, the first things that creation itself produces are produced on the third day and now God is speaking again on a third day to an Israel that has come up out of a land and he speaks to them so that they will become a fruitful people. So I think these... The 10 words and the third day theme coalesce on a kind of new creation context for the 10 words. God is speaking to Israel as a new created people who have come up out of Egypt as his, uh, as his resurrected people, as it were, a, a new Adamic a humanity. Exodus 19.15, I'll
2: bounce this off you. Moses said to the people, be ready for the third day you talked about that. Mm-hmm. Do not go near a woman. Mm-hmm. You haven't talked about that. No, um, I've always taken that to mean remain pure, but there doesn't seem to be any context for that. Do not go near a woman. The woman was created after the man. If Adam is created on the third day, if the woman is created after Adam, if do not go near a woman means the woman isn't there yet hmm. so to speak so you have a company of men the ten commandments is given to man adam so marriage happens after that so to speak and that's the implication here does that make sense to you that uh it does womanness
1: doesn't happen yet It fits with uh, one of the points I was going to make a little bit later, but I'll make it now since you brought it up, Jim. Okay. Um, And that is the grammatical form of the Ten Words, the King James Version, which is the version I learned of the Ten Commandments that still Mm -hmm. rattles in my head. All of the commandments are phrased as thou shalt not or thou shalt. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, so on. The 17th century English distinguished between the singular and plural of the second person the plural being you or ye and then the singular being thou so the king james is reflecting a, a second person singular form of the verbs which is what the hebrew is these are all second person singular forms yeah as if god were addressing an individual male it's second masculine singular so the hebrew the hebrew verb has person and also gender embedded in it, in the form. It's the second, second masculine singular, as if Yahweh is speaking to a male. So, I think the theology behind that is he's speaking to his son, but that that would be an Adamic theme too. God spoke to his son Adam in the garden, the first commandment he gave to Adam alone. Now, at Sinai, he speaks to his son Israel, Adam alone as it were, because they're not near a woman. And so the commandments go directly to this Adamic humanity, and the woman, as a, in a uh, theologically or symbolically, will be formed later. So that that does make some sense. That uh, this is a um, it's a father son talk. That's the that's the way that the word, ten words are framed, and um, the last part of nineteen fifteen does seem to fit with that Adamic context. So if you if you say that though, then the question is, if this is addressed to an Adam a corporate Adam, kind of theoretically without Eve present, theologically without Eve present, when when are we seeing the formation of the Eve? Is that the tabernacle? Is that at the time of the feast that ends this covenant-making ceremony in chapter 24? Where would you see the Eve, the corresponding Eve being made? Is there a grammatical shift? No.
2: I never addressed, I never thought of this question before. Hmm. Don't go near a woman, and thinking of the woman as being added in at some point. Hmm.
1: That's a new kind of question for me. Yeah, same for me. I wonder though if if we look at the rest of the Book of Exodus, a large portion of it has to do with the formation of the the building of the tabernacle. Yeah, and which there are some te- there are some feminine features to the tabernacle. Yeah. So perhaps that's the corresponding Eve in this uh, new creation Perhaps next week we can uh, come back to that. Perhaps we can, Jim. Let's table that for future discussion. And move on. One of the things worth pointing out here, we're looking at Exodus 20 primarily, but uh, uh, the 10 words appear not only in Exodus but also in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 5. uh, And those are given in a a different setting. Deuteronomy 5 is after the years in the wilderness, the generation in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 5 is spoken by Moses, and he is explicitly recalling what the Lord said at Sinai. He's on the plains of Moab. They're not at Sinai anymore. And he's speaking uh, in in his own voice and quoting what the Lord said. And one of the one of the signs of that is that throughout the 10 words in Deuteronomy 5, Moses keeps saying, do this as Yahweh your God commanded you. Do this as Yahweh your God commanded you. So he's referring back to the original commands in uh, Exodus 20. But there are also some shifts in um, the, um, the wording of the 10 words. and the, uh, Some of them are fairly minor, but some of them are pretty significant. Uh, one of the major one, ones has to do with the Sabbath command. In Exodus 20, the Sabbath command is rooted in creation. The reason why Israel is to work six, six days and then rest on the seventh day is because the Lord created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is on, in six days and then rest on the seventh day. So they're imitating the God's work in creation. Uh, in Deuteronomy 5, the justification or the, the the ground for the Sabbath command is not creation, but Exodus, and the emphasis I think that puts the emphasis in a different direction. In in Exodus twenty, the Lord worked and rested; therefore, you work and rest. In Deuteronomy five, it's the Lord delivered you from slave labor and gave you rest; therefore, keep Sabbath. And the accent kind of shifts in Deuteronomy to giving rest rather than merely taking rest. I think that's already implied in Exodus twenty. But the way that the the commandment is supported brings out that emphasis more than in Exodus 20. Yes.
2: It's shifted much more to a social uh, emphasis, giving rest. Mm -hmm. And that will be carried forth in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy hereafter is organized by the 10 words as they are given in Deuteronomy.
1: And the Sabbath will be expounded in terms of giving rest. Mm -hmm. One of the other major uh, changes is in the last uh, of the ten words, which is the prohibition of coveting. In both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, you have two negative commandments. In Exodus 20, the verb is the same both times. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, and so on. The verb is the same in Deuteronomy. They're two different Hebrew verbs, and more importantly, uh, the order is shifted so that instead of saying "Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house," it begins with "Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife," and then the second statement is "Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house," or his male servant, his female servant, and so on. So the 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 position in the commandment, the position of the wife and the house switches. The implication in Exodus 20 is that the wife is one of the things within your neighbor's house that you should not covet. The implication in Deuteronomy 5 is that the wife is uh, is uh, pulled out and not part of the house. She's kind of elevated out of the house. And then the house includes the servants of the animals and his goods but the wife is not included under the rubric or under the under the category of house. And you commented on this as uh, reflecting a shift within the within the Torah from a masculine to a feminine emphasis. This move from an Adamic uh, to, to an Adamic form of the covenant to an Eve form of the covenant, a bridal form of the covenant. And you pointed that out that that's a, that's a recurring pattern throughout the Old Testament that you have. Uh, Covenants come in this double form, first in an an Adamic male form, and then in Eve bridal form. You have pointed that out, have you not? I have pointed out something that can be
2: uh, perversely described in those sexist terms. (laughs) Well, Peter. I would say an Adamic form, second, uh, a marital form, not uh, the uh, elevation of the woman. From uh, kind of a property to a co-ruler is something that you see, and I think that the phrasing of the law there here um, moves her from
1: protected property to co-ruler. One of the other one of the other uh, data points that you've pointed yeah. to has to do with the uh, the Book of Numbers. Yeah, we have a difference in the the way the census is described yeah, at the beginning right. and the end. It's a census of twenty year old males and up who are going to go to war at the beginning. The second is a census that includes households and families, and then particularly in the end, of, at the end of uh, numbers, you have the daughters of Zalafa had come up a couple of times, which they're daughters of a man who died in the wilderness was not part of the rebellion. And they're asking Moses about the inheritance that they're going to receive in the land, and Moses grants their inheritance. And that story comes up twice. Yeah. Um, so there's. And they're
2: a, listed. Right. The,
1: yeah. Right. The the daughters of Zelophehad are listed. So there's this emphasis on uh, women inheriting part of the land at the end of Numbers that was that's not present at the beginning. So th- there's a even within Numbers there's this kind of shift from a more um, masculine bridegroom form of inheritance to the bridal form of inheritance. Yeah.
2: Well, at least the daughters have a place in the inheritance when there is no man. Right. And, of course, their names are Mala, Noah, Milka, Tirzah.
1: I can't remember. Help me out. You're you're missing the one that you always... Emphasize Hogla. Hogla. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. One
2: we name our daughter. That's right. Hogla. <laughs> yes. Hog. Come bring me some food.
1: One of the other issues that comes up in the ten words is trying to trying to uh, enumerate ten words within this text. Yeah. You can't just pick out the imperatives because there are more than ten imperatives. And there's been debate about which of the imperatives count in the 10. And there are basically two versions of this. Uh, one is uh, the Lutheran and Catholic uh, position that combines, and looking at Exodus 20, combines Exodus, 2, uh, Exodus 22, Exodus 20 verse 2 through verse 6 as one commandment. Uh, that is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Those and then what follows there—that's all the first word, the first commandment. The second word then would be, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The third would be, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and so on. And then uh, you need to find some way to have ten. So the the uh, Lutheran Catholic view is that um, the covenanting command is divided into two distinct commands. Uh, thou shalt not covet the neighbor's house is the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not covet the neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant is the tenth commandment. So that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is the Reformed Orthodox and Orthodox view, which distinguishes between Exodus 20 verse 3, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and verses 4 through 6, thou shalt make for, uh, for thyself, shall not make for thee any graven image or likeness of anything that's in heaven above, and so on. So you distinguish between idolatry and making of images. Those are separate commandments. And then on this view... Graven images. Graven images. Then on this view, the two coveting commandments, although you have two statements, it's all one commandment. And I think the... uh, I think that the Catholic
2: view is that you go with Deuteronomy and that covening the wife is the ninth commandment. Oh. And Coveting the house, et cetera, is the 10th commandment.
1: Okay, okay, yeah. the Catholics do that. Lutherans would use Exodus 20, at least I grew up using Exodus okay. 20. And uh, that's what I covered the universe house was the okay, was you me. may be right, and you may be right in general. I can't uh, remember, yeah, but you may be right, Jim. Um, we may both be right, Peter. <laughs> so, those are, the, those are the two options you either combine idolatry with making of graven images as one commandment, or you com- and, and therefore distinguish the two covenant commandments, or you distinguish those first commandments against idolatry, worshiping other gods, and making graven images, those two distinct commandments, and then combine the two statements about coveting. And I think that without going into all the ins and outs of the reasons, uh, the, the second version, the Reformed Orthodox version, I think is the right one one of the reasons has to do with the shift from Exodus 20 to Deuteronomy 5. If the covenant commandments are two separate commandments, then you don't just have a shift within a commandment; you have a shift of the commandments. So the ninth becomes the tenth, and the tenth becomes the ninth. Part of the tenth becomes the ninth as you move from Exodus to Deuteronomy. That seems a little odd. You have changes within the commandments, otherwise, but. Um, To shift the position of the ninth and tenth commandment, that seems strange. The one qualification I would make, uh, the Westminster Confession says that Exodus 22, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, is a preface Mm -hmm. to the Ten Commandments. I think instead we should read that as the beginning of the first word, and it's the rationale that's given for the commandment against idolatry. Why should Israel not... Worship other gods, well, it's because this is the God. Yahweh is the God who brought them out of Egypt. So the Exodus is the basis for their for the exclusive worship of this one God. We're going to be assuming the Reformed-slash-Orthodox version of the Ten Words as we go through, and we're going to be discussing the second word, what we are counting as the second word, a commandment against graven images, as a distinct commandment as we go through. Do you want to add anything to that discussion of the numbering of the ten words?
2: Only that the, the um, Orthodox view is that graven images are what is forbidden. That's why you don't have any statues in Orthodox churches. Only flat icons painted, they aren't graven. <laughs> right. So that's a big deal for them.
1: Yeah, Yeah. So they, and they would have to take graven image and likeness as being... Synonymous, synonymous, right? Thou shalt not make for yourself any graven image. That is to say, any likeness of anything. Right. Rather than two distinct statements, we'll uh, we'll discuss that. I'm sure when we get to the second word. The last thing I want to talk about is the f- the form, the pattern within the ten words. Historically, the ten words have been seen as well. The Bible itself talks about two tablets of the ten words, and historically, the church has understood that to mean that. The first tablet contains some of the ten words. the second tablet contains the rest of the ten words. Uh, and that's usually been understood to be ref- to reflect the distinction between uh, Jesus' two great commandments. The first tablet has to do with love of God. The second tablet has to do with love of neighbor. That's generally has, has been the church's tradition. There's been some debate about how to divide them up and which commandments belong on which table. And that's bound up with the debate about, uh, or the question of how to number the commandments. So if you take the Lutheran view, the commandments are the words that have to do with love of God uh, would be the first three, that is, idolatry and graven images, number one. Now, take the name of the Lord your God in vain, number two, and then remember the Sabbath day, those are the three on the first tablet, and then the rest are on the second tablet. Uh, If you distinguish the first two commandments, then you have four on the first tablet and six on the second tablet. Some scholars have suggested that that whole notion that you're dividing up the ten words, you're distributing the ten words between the two tablets, is itself flawed. Meredith Klein argued that, uh, based on parallels with covenant making in the ancient world, that both tablets would have contained all of the terms of the covenant. Each tablet would have all of the ten words on it. If you're making a covenant with, uh, if you're making a covenant between two parties, each party would go away with a copy of the contract, as it were. So you'd make two copies, and uh, so you make two copies of the ten words. And in this case, both copies are placed with the Lord in the in the sanctuary under the under the cover of the ark inside the ark. Uh, but um, uh, Klein's argument is that the ten words are not distributed between the two tablets, but are entirely all 10 words are on each tablet, um, which may be true in terms of what's actually contained on, what was actually contained on the 10 tablets. But I, I do think that there's a literary pattern in the 10 words that distinguishes between two different sections. Uh, I don't think the traditional ways of dividing them up are correct. I think that it ends up being a five plus five. The first five commandments go together Literarily, stylistically, and the second five commandments go together, literary and stylistically. And that's, I think, fairly, fairly easy to show by highlighting a number of details. Uh, the first five words in Exodus 20, each of them contains the name Yahweh. Uh, in the second five words, you don't have the name Yahweh at all. So from Exodus 20, verse 13 through 17, Yahweh's name is never used, and it's used seven times prior to that. So the first, mm. the first five commandments name Yahweh the second five don't the first five commandments each have an explanation attached to them or a warning? It's not just a commandment and then no explanation. There's there's something added to it. So, motive clause. A motive clause, right? So for the first word, I think the motive clause is "I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt." For the second is "I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the maker of the fathers on the children." The third is, uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain because the Lord will not leave him unpunished. The fourth is, keep the Sabbath day because the Lord kept Sabbath. The fifth is, honor your father and your mother. The promise is that you'll live long in the land. So each of the first five commandments includes some kind of explanation. And then just, uh, it's you can see on any English text, the first five commandments are much wordier there's more. There's more text there than in the second five commandments. So I think they end up being a five plus five pattern. And uh, Jim, you've argued that they match up first and the sixth, second and the seventh, and so on. The common themes in each of
2: those. Well, I have this huge book called Covenant Sequence in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's a tome. I think you would say. Yes, it's a tome. It's a short uh, study guide. <laughs> produced years ago, and it's out of print now, and there are still lingering copies, but it's still around, Covenant Sequence in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That book is called Covenant Sequence in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, published by Institute for Christian Economics, and uh, it's really rare and valuable. And the fourth chapter of the book is now a line of Deuteronomy, and it goes through Deuteronomy, and it goes through the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, showing how the majority of the book is an exposition of the Ten Commandments in order. That is to say, the, that large collection of laws that are in the book are following the Ten Words. But I think um, that you've got a five plus five structure in the book, and uh, I've argued for it there. That is, the first five commandments have a chiasic structure. You will have no other gods before me, matches with, you know, honor your parents. Don't make a carving or anything that is... or any likeness of anything in heaven or on the earth is matched up with honoring the Sabbath day. Those are two liturgical commands. Um, What you do to draw near to God, and then at the center is, uh, don't take God's name
1: in vain, which belongs at the center. All right, that's your chiasmic structure. And then the, the second five, you also see a corresponding chiasm.
2: Yeah, corresponding yeah. chiasm. Well, honor your father and mother. That's
1: honoring God. So murder, thou shalt not kill, would be corresponding to the coveting in the If you're doing a chiasm of the second five. Yeah. Adultery with false witness. And then stealing would be at the center. Yeah, and that goes
2: back to Genesis
1: Stealing the apple. Right. And if I'm matching up the first five with the second five, just looking at those middle yeah. commandments, bearing God's name lightly and stealing match up because bearing God's name lightly is a theft of God's name, a theft of God's glory, an assault on his on his holy name, and stealing is a is a theft of your neighbor's goods and property and glory. So that would be one correspondence. The link between the 2nd and the 7th, the 2nd commandment prohibits making a graven image and warns about jealousy. Yeah. And the 7th commandment is about adultery. So, those those both have a marital... One of them is directly about marriage. The other one is implied about Yahweh's marriage to Israel. No other gods before me links with the command against murder, idolatry and murder and assault on God. And then um, worship of false gods is equivalent to an assault on the image of God in man. So you're matching up the first five commandments with the second, second five commandments. They're conceptually similar. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is a good assignment to leave with uh, those who are listening to us. They can work out the rest on their That's own. That's right. Of course. They're adults. Uh, the, the Covenant Sequence book, by the way, is free online somewhere. Yeah. So it's, it's, it is available Rare in uh, in physical form, but it's uh, if you poke around, you can find it. Yeah, freebooks dot com, probably right. Uh, one of the things that try this out on you, Jim. I don't know if we discussed this before, but one of the things that um, occurred to me with a with a five plus five setup of the ten words, whether that's the way they were distributed on the tablets or not. You still have this literary structure of five plus yeah. five. Uh, and then I thought about the, the architectural symbolism of the, those commandments, five plus five, ten words in a five plus five pattern being placed in the, uh, in the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. When you get to the temple, you have other five plus five, you have other other sets of ten that are divided into five. You have ten lampstands, you have ten tables. You have ten water stands outside the temple, and i thought about that as uh, the ten the ten words divided into five plus five, being symbolized by tables of showbread, because the law of the Lord is bread and food, symbolized by ten lampstands, which are the law of the Lord is a light to our path, symbolized by the ten water stands out in the courtyard, which are a river flowing out from the Lord's house to the nations, and the temple furnishings in a sense symbolize the work of the ten words the five plus five words uh, within Israel as bread and light and among the nations as life-giving water so the the, the word is to flow out from Zion flow out through Israel illuminating them, feeding them flow out to the nations so the nations are refreshed and renewed by it what do you think?
2: I'm sure you could make it work (laughs) I have made it work, Jim. Yeah. yeah, sounds good to me, Peter. Thank you, Jim. Uh, because you've got these uh, isomorphic patterns that repeat in the Holy of Holies and then on out. So it makes sense.
1: Yeah. What do you? I've also thought you've got two tablets within the Ark of the Covenant, flanking the Ark of the Covenant. You have two cherubim. Yeah, cheating a little bit because you have two cherubim on the cover. But you've got these freestanding cherubim, and I wondered if uh, the two plus two is also co- bringing out a correspondence between the law and the cherubim. The law has a kind of cherubic quality to it. You can make that work too, Jim, If with enough ingenuity. You can say that the law is like a, a you work. Know, if you
2: meditate on it day and night, you can... Make anything work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Especially if you meditate on it at night. So the the law the law is kind of is a like a an ox which is a working animal the law is like a devouring lion attacking lion the law gives us the kind of perspective the eagle's perspective prophetic perspective the law is a fully human law so you can you can spin out different dimensions of the law by looking at the faces of the cherubim don't you think yes and I've done that. <laughs>